Well, today I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 8 as we continue in this section of episodes that are written to remind and underscore that not only does Jesus teach with authority as he does in the Sermon on the the Mount, but that he speaks and acts with authority. He demonstrates his authority over various spheres of existence, over various aspects of existence. And so throughout all of this, you see his authority. What manner of man is this is the central question. And of course, the answer that Matthew wants you to come away with is he is the Messiah. All right? So let's look starting at chapter 8, verse 18, all the way through chapter 9, verse 13. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side of the the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. 
But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or, say, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for our Lord's demonstration of his authority and power. Lord, we pray that you would indeed bring us to greater obedience to the Son. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen. So in this episode we have here, uh, we see a number of things on display. It begins with two would-be followers of Christ, and it culminates with the aftermath of Matthew having been called to be a follower of Christ. So, so the issue of following Christ is the bookends of this section. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? What kind of person is a follower of Christ? And by what call do we become a follower of Christ? I want you to note throughout this whole thing you see repeatedly the efficacious, authoritative, sovereign voice of our Lord. In each case, beginning, beginning even earlier, yet last week where we began in chapter 8, there's a problem that he's confronted with. He speaks, and the sick are healed. He speaks at a distance, and the servant is made well. He merely touches, and the woman is made well. The storm rages. He speaks, and it stops. The leper, or not the leper, the paralytic, he speaks, and he picks up his mat and goes home. He comes to a tax collector and he speaks, and he comes. Okay. 
There are those who would suggest that when Jesus addresses the sickness, he's authoritative. When he addresses the winds, he's authoritative. When he addresses the demons, he's authoritative. When he addresses the paralysis, he's authoritative. But when he addresses Matthew, he's invitational. No. What we're seeing here is a glimpse at the authoritative call of our Savior. As a true sovereign, when he speaks, things happen. The efficacious nature of the word of the Lord is what we see on display here. There are many would-be followers. And the episode we see here at the start of this section in verses 18 through 22 is astonishingly what happens every single time in any of the Gospels we see someone approaching Jesus with their initiative. This is astonishing. Check the Gospels and see. Whenever someone would come to Jesus of their own initiative, he always, always, always drills down on the demands of the kingdom. And they leave dismayed. But yet those whom the Lord would have, they don't seek him out. He comes to them and issues the call to follow. Now, from this, I want you to see first and foremost that the general principle we have in Scripture is that we love him because he first loved us. We respond to his leading. If you call on the name of Christ, if you are trusting in him alone for your salvation, if you are seeking the kingdom, it is because he has done a work in you. He has called you. And you have responded. It is absolutely entirely possible, as Jesus belabors almost in chapter 7, to think that Jesus is a righteous dude. For some aspect of his teaching to appeal to you and that you have a, a, a positive regard for Jesus. It is possible for a human to think positively of Jesus and yet not be one of Jesus's. To not follow him in obedience. If you have followed him in obedience, it is because he has spoken through his spirit efficaciously. You might say irresistibly. And he has drawn you into relationship with himself. And so this passage, as it highlights the difference between would-be followers and those whom Christ has called. This episode, as we take place, as we go through the various scenes of this episode, we see on display in each case something about Jesus that should then correspond to an attitude we have as disciples, as followers, in our following of Jesus. So first and foremost, we have in verses 18 19 and 20, these would-be 
this would-be follower of Christ. And what does Jesus say to him? Foxes have holes, and birds have the air, a birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the first principle we see of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ is that we follow him unpretentiously. There's a lot of people who want to follow, who want to, who want to get close to a rising star. They want, to, they want to curry favor. They want to jockey for position. They want to benefit in some way, shape, or form. And Jesus here tells this scribe, if you follow me, you may not even know where you're going to spend the night. Understand that he was Lord of the world, and yet he didn't have a home. The ministry that he undertook took him here, there, and everywhere. And those who would follow him must do so knowing full well that obedience to the call and command of Christ may mean the giving up of everything. Now, you may be blessed with security and you may be, be, be granted great riches by our Lord, but fundamentally, the call is one of following. And so if he says go, we must go. And so you must accept the invitation, the offer, the command to repent. You must accept it, understanding that if you come to Christ thinking that this is my ticket to success, to stability, to the good life, then you're not pursuing Christ for the sake of Christ and the kingdom. You're pursuing it for whatever perceived end you have. And therefore, you will leave dismayed. So followers of Christ follow unpretentiously. But then we see another. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus almost, I mean, this, this is... Ooh. Let the dead bury their own dead. What does that mean? My goodness. Doesn't that sound harsh? I mean, think about that. Does that mean we shouldn't, we shouldn't have funerals? Does, does that mean that, that, that only spiritually dead, that only unbelievers can be in the mortuary business? What does that mean? Why is he saying this? Jesus is a master of hyperbole. And he's addressing someone who's saying, in effect, I'll follow you and I'll commit my life to you when it's convenient to me. You see, knowledge of the first century is absolutely essential for this. Jewish custom at the time required absolutely required that upon the death of a person, you must inter them within 24 hours because of what happens to a body. And they didn't have the modern stuff we have. So within 24 hours, so if this man's father was dead, he would either be in the ground or this man would be busy Putting him in the ground, he wouldn't be talking to Jesus right now at all because time was absolutely of the essence. No, what is this man saying? 
I have family concerns. I have an aging or an ailing parent, and, and, you know, eventually he's going to die. And when he dies, I'll be freed up. And once, he, once I'm freed up, Jesus, then I'll follow you. That sounds like a great application of the, of the fifth commandment, doesn't it? Honor your father and your mother. When he calls James and John and Simon and Andrew, what are they doing? They're fishing. With whom? They're pappy. And, and what do these guys do? They jump out of the boat and swim to shore. See you later, pops. They don't say it that way. Okay. What Jesus is getting at here when he addresses this man, he's getting at the truth that following him must, must, must. This is not an option. He is either sovereign of your life or he's nothing. He is either the most important thing or he's nothing. Jesus himself says it. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And from now on a man's own enemies will be those of his household. And so the demands of discipleship are such that absolutely no human relationship, no human authority can take precedence. In this case, the very person of Jesus was here. And so to follow him meant literally to follow him. And if Jesus is absolutely the most important being in the universe, then following him literally meant leaving your place and going after him all down the road. Now, thankfully, we can be disciples of Jesus without leaving our homes. But, 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 I hear it and I've seen it and I encounter reports of it all the time where inevitably the demands of discipleship will butt up oftentimes against the expectations placed on you by loved ones. And that may be hard, but Jesus is very clear. People who are his followers follow him wholeheartedly, unreservedly, or else he's nothing. Third, following Jesus, following Jesus should be done fearlessly. Notice the motif of fear. First, in the storm, the men are afraid. Jesus speaks, calms the storm, and they're not happy. They are even more afraid. Jesus gets out the boat. He goes to cast the demons into the pigs. The people come. Are they rejoicing and praising the Lord for this great relief brought upon this poor, poor, these poor men? They're, they're afraid. And they beg him to leave. 
he goes and the, they bring a paralytic. He speaks to them. He heals the paralytic. And what does it say? They were afraid. Fear, fear, fear. Fear marks the human experience. When something unusual or out of the way or something that happens that takes place that we can't quite put into a contextual box, the human response is fear. Because we know we are finite and we know that we are frail. But here, Jesus wants you to know he's Lord. He's Lord of the powers of the earth. He's Lord of the powers of the spiritual realm. He's Lord of natural forces. And so if you're following him, we should be like him. Able to rest easy, knowing that we are in his hand. And he is guiding us. And he is leading us. And he's directing us. And so in this world, you will face many, many difficulties. But as a follower of Christ, you have the example of our Lord in every context to assuage your fears because he is sovereign over every sphere. So live fearlessly. Obey him vigorously, joyously, knowing that there's nothing that nobody can do because Jesus is truly sovereign. But then, perhaps most joyously, we should follow Jesus with free hearts. And what do I mean by that? Well, too many people, too many Christians walk around carrying the baggage of their past sin. And they're following Jesus but, but it's almost like they, they just can't get out from under this cloud of guilt. And, and Jesus sets you free. It's, it's awesome. The, the story of the, of the paralytic, you know, Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And talk is cheap. I mean, that's an ostentatious, that's an outrageous claim to say your sins are forgiven. Who are you to forgive sins, right? It's easy to say, though, because you can't prove it. Disprove it. If I say to you, your sins are forgiven, prove me, prove me one way or the other. You, it, you, you can't. But it's still outrageous to say. You, you can, however, prove if a lame man gets up and starts dancing around. Which is why that's the harder statement. When he says it's harder, it means it's the one that can actually be verified. It's like you go to those faith healers and they always heal tummy bugs or something. I want to see him heal a goiter on someone's neck or something. You know, they, they don't, they can't. So Jesus finds a lame man and he heals him and that's the sign that what he said earlier about forgiveness of sins, that if I can actually do this, then I can do this too. And so we see the, the grid that we're supposed to understand. All of these miracles, they're not just random doings. They're signs. 
signs to point us to his sovereign power, authority, and goodness because every single thing that he does is for our good that we might follow him with a free heart. And he, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And to what extent does he forgive sins? The next episode then is he's walking by and he sees a tax collector at his booth. We have absolutely no indication that Matthew was a righteous, honest tax collector, that he was just doing his job. We have every indication that he was a bona fide tax collector, which means he was taking his bribe, you know, he was getting his kickbacks. He, he was in cahoots with the Roman oppressors at the expense of his own people, a truly detestable person. He's sitting there. He's not seeking Jesus out. And Jesus walks up to him and commands him to follow and this creature of dust heeds the voice of his creator. And he's lounging at the house. And we learn in other passages that Matthew is so rejoicing that to be forgiven that he hosts a dinner party. And it, it's great. But the Pharisees cannot process this. How can he eat with these detestable people? They're not just people with little oopsies in their life. These are truly wretched people. And it's because they've repented. And in repentance, they've found mercy. And we see that the fundamental orientation of Jesus' ministry is to call the unrighteous to repentance and faith and to be reconciled to their father. And so what we see here in these verses is a picture of truly vile, wretched people coming back into the fold, being welcomed, received, and made dinner guests with our Lord. That's the true sign of table fellowship, is the true sign of acceptance in the first century. So, if he does this for Matthew, if he does it for this paralytic, then he does it for every single person who hears his voice and turns to him in repentance and faith. He forgives to the uttermost. And he receives comprehensively. Your past is not too sordid. You are welcomed and received by Jesus, and that means then that as we live our Christian life, we should live in light of our reception. So our hearts then are free. It's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot more fun to live in obedience to Jesus when you do so recalling and remembering that you are free which is precisely why the devil will labor so hard to keep you under that cloud of guilt and shame. He can't take your salvation, but he can make your life here miserable. Defeat it. Defeat the devil with the, with the sword of the spirit, with the shield of faith, with the breastplate of righteousness. Defeat the devil as he assaults and assails your soul 
and with an unburdened heart, then fearlessly, unreservedly, and unpretentiously live in obedience to your Savior who rules all things, has called you to share in his dominion and will one day share with you the spoils of heaven itself. That, brothers and sisters, is awesome news. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the work of Jesus to save us from our sins. We thank you that because of what Jesus has done for us, we can be free from the burdens of sin and guilt, just as we are free from the judicial claims of the law. Grant that we would live fearlessly, that we would give ourselves unreservedly and unpretentiously to you in your service. Grant that we would be found faithful and that we would live our lives with joy. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.